Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn, and you are listening to Rethinking EDU. I'm so happy you joined us for our 23rd episode. Super excited to be hanging out with my friend and guest, Elizabeth Hamblett. Elizabeth, how are you doing this uh, fine afternoon? Well, it's hard to believe it's the beginning of September. So, you know, I'm dealing with that shock a little bit, but other than that, I'm good. Yeah, it is really crazy that it seems so long ago that we all left our schools, headed to our home offices, and here we are trying to re-enter uh, schools this fall. Um, it's a little surreal, but we're making it happen across the board and so many schools with so many different plans. Um, it's really pretty fascinating to watch it all unfold. And Elizabeth, you're here talking with me this evening um, as a college learning disability specialist and an author, of course. Your most recent book is From High School to College, Steps to Success for Students with Disabilities. But you've also authored a number of articles and you've spoken at my school and around the country. Um, and you specifically work on the college side with students as they transition from high school to college. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that work? What are the types of things that you do with students? Sure, so uh, two days a week, I work at an unnamed university. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> at, at No Name University. And uh, that's my favorite part of my job. So I meet one-on-one -on -one with students. Anybody registered with our Disability Services Office can come and see me. So the predominant you know, characteristic typically is a learning disability or ADHD. And, you know, in our hour or so, I work with them on whatever they need to work on. So um, often, uh, which is not surprising for college students, it's time management. Mm. So that is a huge problem, I think, for really most students at college, regardless of whether or not they have a disability. Um, and I also work on organization, some reading strategies, organizing their writing. So, you know, it, it, it certainly keeps me on my toes. It keeps it interesting. And, and that's, that's really uh, work that I enjoy. And then when I'm not at the university, I am doing, as you said, writing and, and presenting on, you know, to, to make sure that parents and professionals are aware of the changes at the college level for students with disabilities so that they can give them the right preparation. Super interesting. And I don't know if many of our listeners know um, much about this area that you specialize in, but every college in the country that accepts federal funding has to have a disability support services office that acts in a variety of different capacities at many colleges, but their primary focus is to make sure that students are um, able to gain uh, equitable access to the materials that are being presented to them in college. Um, but a lot of college disability resource centers also do the kind of work that you're describing, Elizabeth, which is helping students with all the other struggles that might come about in college. And I know from my perspective, uh, I went to a Big Ten uh, university, go Michigan State, and um, I don't have a learning disability that I know of, and time management was 
a, a, a struggle. <laughs> you yeah. know, you you sort of like, right, we, we talk about this often, you leave your 40-hour work week as a high school student or 30-hour work week as a high school student, and you're off into the land of college where you go to class like, what, 15 hours a week or something like that? Um, Absolutely. I, I think it's, you know, it's counterintuitive. I think a lot of people would look at the average college student schedule and say, well, you know, look at all that time. Of course, you can get work done. But, you know, um, I don't know about you, but I often approach a weekend with a list of things I'm going to get done around the house and, you know, chores I've been putting off and somehow Sunday night, you know, with no structure to my weekend, somehow they don't all get done. So um, <laughs> right, I right. think, you know, we do ourselves a disservice thinking that it's easy to manage that much time when honestly, it's, it's really not. So um, yeah, I mean, and, and to circle back to something that you said, I think that there are um, increasing numbers of schools providing the kind of assistance that I do, um, but not necessarily through the Disability Services Office. And that is one of the things that I talk to people about when I do these presentations and that I write about. So, um, you know, as you said, the, 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 the rules are different, the, the expectations for what colleges have to provide is quite different um, than what happens in K through 12. And so, um, you know, universities like this one that I currently work at does provide me, uh, you know, my services to my students free of charge, but only once a week, in, I'm sorry, uh, you know, once every two weeks hmm. um, for a certain amount of time. So, uh, I'm hearing more and more stories about general tutoring centers at a variety of colleges that are providing what they are calling academic coaching. Um, so it's not necessarily by somebody like me with a background in special ed, um, but they might train their own trainers, you know, I'm sorry, train their own coaches, um, grad students perhaps to work with students on these kinds of things. So you don't certainly don't have to have a background in special ed to do the kinds of things that we're talking about. Um, and, you know, uh, there are uh, schools that are offering, uh, you know, like how to be a student to freshmen um, mm, right. as, as a one credit course or something where they do teach organization and time management. So I think there's been a recognition, I don't have any research on this, but I'm hearing anecdotally from parents more and more about schools that are offering this kind of um, assistance for what we now know are executive functions. Um, than, than used to. I think there's become a greater recognition that that kind of, you know, help will help students be successful in school. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I like to think about it like the most common metric that colleges are being measured on is, number one, their admission rate. How low is that number? Right? Can we get to Pomona or whoever is the lowest rate? It's like 4% or something, acceptance rate. And number two is graduation retention rate, right? How many students are staying and how many students are graduating in the four to six year span that we're often measuring? And I think colleges realize that if those supports aren't provided to more students, then that number is going to sink and that's going to look bad for them. So it's better for them just to provide more academic coaches, provide people that are going to really try to work with students on these things like, you know, organization, which the truth is, is that you leave an 18 year old with, you know, 30 hours of a week of extra time. And I can hear, I can 
picture the number of things that they can do with that time that doesn't involve studying or going to the library, which seem to be the least attractive options when you're um, when you're that age. But before we talk more about um, executive functions, which you mentioned just a bit ago, and I, I would really love to pick your brain on that. I'm just curious how you ended up getting into this, this, this role that you have. I know that you started off as a special ed teacher. Like, how did, how did that happen? <laughs> it's a crooked path, like most paths <laughs> these days. So, which is what I like to, you know, make sure students and, you know, even my own children know about, because I think that, you know, there's an impression that you, you pick a, a college because that's the major you're going to, you know, pursue because that's the job you're going to have and you're going to get out of school and pursue this life. And, you know, life is long for, for a lot of us if we're lucky and there are a lot of different interests that you'll pursue. So um, I had finished graduate school with a degree in special ed and had a part-time job and was seeking mm -hmm. to do more work. And the college at which I had earned my master's degree, Simmons College in Boston, had an opening for a part-time learning specialist. And so what part of the, you know, the raison d'etre with my terrible French accent um, <laughs> for, for what I do today is that it wasn't, you know, when I started working at the same school that had given me a, a degree in special ed, um, I realized that the college rules were different and that the program I had just completed had not talked to me about that. So, you know, IDEA is not in place at college and 504 and the ADA are, but 504 is, it's a different subpart that colleges uh, come under. And so, you know, the mandates are really different. The requirements are really different. And so, um, you know, I worked there and then my husband and I moved to another state and I, I started working here in New Jersey at, at, at Rutgers. And as students were uh, registering with our office and, and making requests for accommodation, you know, really started to grow on me this notion that, um, you know, there was this disconnect between high school and college and other people have, you know, have written about, about the same thing with regard to documentation, but also, you know, importantly, understanding what the expectations are and how things are different. And so, um, you know, to me, planning, the word plan is a very meaningful word. It implies all manner of things. And so, you know, when people say, oh, you take your 504 plan to college, I explain to them that that's certainly technically not true. It may serve as documentation. And that's a, that's a whole other discussion we're not getting into today. But in other words, um, you know, colleges don't write plans for for the most part, maybe some of them do, but we, we provide accommodations. We will write a, a document that says what your accommodations are. And I people have told me some colleges call that a 504 plan. But mm -hmm. the word plan means you are going to set a goal and figure out how to work toward that goal. That is literally what a plan is. Sure. And yeah. so when we talk about transition planning at the high school level, how do you plan without understanding what the environment looks like? Mm, yeah, yeah. And so that became a real interest of mine. And so I started writing and doing these presentations. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed getting to know, you know, travel around and meet people and talk to them about this. And, you know, I learn a lot because, um, again, I, you probably know the number better than I do, but I know there are at least 4,000 colleges in the country. Yeah. And so I certainly would never say that I know what's going on everywhere. And I try to talk to people about what, 
my understanding of the field is from being in communities of, of professionals like myself. And I get great, you know, anecdotes about colleges that are going beyond what the minimum requires. They're doing peer mentoring or they are providing academic coaching, things like that. So, you know, I learn as much from the people I talk to in this work as, as they probably learn from me. Yeah, so interesting. I, I agree with you. This podcast is one of those examples for me. I feel like I'm learning more and more every episode we uh, we get into. You know, we talk with fascinating people about really cool things that are happening in schools, and this conversation certainly being part of that. Um, I'm always I'm always learning. So I can imagine it's just is the wealth of information and knowledge, and also the trends that are happening in higher education, I think are important and um, important for K-12 educators and K-12 counselors and um, K-12 students and parents to, to kind of keep in mind. Um, so just to circle back for a second, I, I mentioned a little bit and you mentioned about executive functioning. And I feel like the more, my school's been talking about executive functioning now for, I think we've been open for 14 years. So like 13.75 years, we've been talking about executive functioning, you know, it's like the, probably like the third month in, we were like, this has got to happen. But <laughs> that hasn't necessarily been the case for most schools in the country. Mm-hmm. I would argue that it particularly in the last two to two to four years or so, executive functioning, if you were to like, you know, look it up as a trending hashtag on Twitter, you would see the number of tweets about an EF grow and grow and grow. And I'm just curious about your thoughts around why you think that's been the case. Well, it's funny. I have a friend who's a neuropsychologist and at least five years ago, she said to me, oh, y'all are catching up with executive functioning. We neuropsychologists have been talking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, look, I think, you know, and back to neuropsych, I mean, we are learning so much more in cognitive psychology about the brain and how it works. And now we know prefrontal cortices are not fully developed until kids are, I think, what? young adults, like 20, early 20s, 25. 25, yeah. I think part of me feels like maybe it's trickling down from the real hard sciences that as they learn things, we, you know, we're interpreting it more, if you Mm. will, like translating it to real life. Um, And I think, you know, part of what you said, look, I mean, college is unbelievably expensive. And so, you know, I I, I volunteer on a scholarship board here where I live. uh, not related to, to my work. And, you know, when you ask people to take on debt to go pursue this degree, you know, I really think it's it's an ethical obligation to make sure that they can be successful, you know, given the right tools. And so I think, as you said, you know, schools are starting to have to, have to pay attention to the retention and graduation rates. But, you know, <laughs> education is a business even though it's education. And so sure. perhaps that's something that's driving it. But I think, again, you know, I think we are, our, our understanding of learning disabilities and ADHD and ASD and all these things are, are evolving and EF, you know, becomes a part of that because it's so relevant <laughs> across a lot of these topics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about the growth of uh, the field of neuroscience as also coinciding with the growth of executive functioning as a kind of a educational buzzword, but that makes a lot of sense to me. 
there's I've seen at least in graduate programs a growth of the growth of coursework that centers around neuroscience and learning, mm-hmm. right? And that co like coexistence has then trickled down to let's teach more undergrads about neuroscience and then let's talk to more teachers about neuroscience, which I think has also resulted in what you're talking about, which is the growth of EF and paired with the ethical, I think, mandate really we have at the university level to say, what are you getting for your $75,000 a year or whatever it costs these days? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, and um, look, you know, the story, of, it's pardon me for just a minute, and, and I'll throw myself under the bus here too, right sure. along with you. You know, when I was an undergrad and I got to college, I mean, I still remember trying to read, I think, half a psychology textbook before the midterm. Yeah. And, you know, by junior year, I had I'd gotten it, the light bulb went on eventually, and I figured out, oh, if I start that paper two weeks ahead of time, it's probably going to be a better paper. Um, so I stumbled into it. And, but I, I think it's better if students don't have to stumble, you know, I mean. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yes. I don't think that these things, certainly there are students who have, you know, part of the learning disability or their ADHD is, you know, as, as we say, as the law says, a substantial limitation in, in everyday functioning as a result of EF weaknesses. But, you know, a lot of us would just benefit from strategies, um, you know, regardless of whether or not we have any weaknesses. Like uh, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm a strategy gal. So there are just things I do that make my life predictable in really comforting ways. Um, and even, you know, I've, I've launched two kids to, to college. And one of the things that we always did was like the household schedule of laundry on Thursday, grocery shopping on Friday. And so they had, a, um, you know, at least a model f- for a way to organize their time. Yeah, that's um, great. You know, yeah. and if, if I was traveling for work on a Thursday, somebody would ask me early in the week, well, when is laundry going to happen if you, you know, if you're, if you're out on Thursday? So, um, it, you know, I think routines and, and can actually create opportunities for flexibility. They're, those two are not um, contra, uh, contraindicated is not the word I want, but they're not in conflict with each other. Sure. A routine actually allows for flexibility. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think I want to talk more specifically about what executive functioning means mm-hmm. when we're talking, uh, when we're using that term and specifically what kinds of things are housed under the umbrella term of executive functioning. But before we do that, I want to say that your area of specialty is with students who have learning disabilities. But to your last point here, I think that a lot of your work is really um, broadly applicable to students, period, and to and to adults, really. Like you said, so many, you yourself live in a world that is comforted by routines and strategies, and I, I am the same. You know, I like to wake up at a similar time every morning. My body likes to wake up at a similar time every morning. I like to have an idea that on Wednesdays, I'm going to go to the grocery store and on Saturdays, I'm going to sleep in, you know, these sorts of things that kind of normalize an otherwise chaotic world. And those things I think are, are important for really many, many students. And they don't have to be just 
zoned for students who have learning dis disabilities. Um, Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about what executive functioning means. So if you're a if a, if a teacher or a parent or administrator is listening to this and they're like, hmm, I think I've heard that before, but not quite sure. Give us give us some insight. What's housed under that umbrella? So I want to always give uh, credit where credit is due. So my friends over at understood.org always mm -hmm. have exactly what I need when I need it. Um, so I'm going to crib off of their, <laughs> their executive function page because um, I think they explain it really well. So, you know, executive functioning is sort of an umbrella term that to, to, to describe a, a suite, if you will, of, of skills. Um, so there is working memory. How much can you hold in your head while you're doing other things? Um, cognitive flexibility. Um, how can you shift from one task to another? You, you get stuck, do you perseverate? When you move to the next thing, is your brain still in the other place? Um, inhibitory control, being in control of your emotional regulation, um, inhibit, inhibiting responses to things even beyond the emotional piece. Um, attention is in there, prioritizing, um, initiating tasks, and obviously completing tasks. Hmm. Um, you know, so these are all, you know, they're sort of like the underlying functions of, of a student, the kinds of, you know, diverting your attention, you know, or, or, or um, directing, excuse me, your attention to what you need to be paying attention to, getting tasks started. Um, you know, procrastination is a huge problem, again, for most students at, at sure. the college level. Um, it is hard, and I was just um, posting uh, to my social media today a, a, a tool I use when I, when I have students that I see pretty regularly, and they don't all, you know, some of them come and meet with me, and they sort of get what they need, presumably, and they keep, you know, they don't come back, um, but others like to have that accountability of knowing they're going to come and see me, and so um, with them, I try to do weekly goal setting because I do think, you know, back to my weekend, uh, you know, best laid plans um, thwarted by a lack of, of organization. Um, <laughs> I think that you can, uh, it's really easy because at college, there are so few deadlines, right? Uh, for, for a lot of students, and it's different from course to course and obviously subject to subject, my sciences and math students often have problem sets. So what we, in the business world, we call a deliverable, um, you know, actually really helps keep students on track. I was a literature major, so you had to read, you know, a novel a week, but if you were good enough and you sat in the back, sometimes you could get away with not having read it. Um, but it piles up, and so, mm -hmm. Um, I think that uh, trying to get started on something when there is no really pressing urgency because you don't have to create a deliverable that is either in for credit or not um, makes it seem not so urgent. And with the distractions of college, perhaps not right now during COVID for those poor kids living at home, um, but you know, often in a typical environment, it, there are just a lot of other things you could be doing instead of the work. And so um, I think it makes it even more challenging to do this kind of stuff. Um, and then you know, getting it done and knowing that the next thing is coming and being ready for that. So you know, planning for long-term um, assignments before they are upon you is another, you know, a planning situation. So 
I think I started by saying I have this tool where I walk students through, you know, what, what's your overall goal for the term? What do you want to do? And, you know, the, the SMART goals rubric of is it specific, measurable, achievable, I think real, everybody's got their different definitions, realistic and time bound, like, okay, you want to do well. Well, specifically, what is well doing well mean? Oh, I want to get an A in this class. Oh, I need a 3.7 to keep my scholarship, whatever it is. Okay, great. Let's break that down. How do you get to that? Well, I earn a certain grade on my exams. Great. How do you get to that? Well, I got to stay on top of my stuff. And so we said, you know, and the weekly goal can just be complete all these assignments before, you know, class. And then when I see them the next time we go through it, you know, we try to, you know, get a, a rough ballpark of if you had four goals and you got two of them done, that's 50%. That's, that's something. And if not, you know, this, the, the, you know, metacognition to me is a big thing. And that's just a fancy term for thinking about your thinking and being aware of what you're doing. Metacognition is really important with the executive functioning piece too. What should I be doing? What did I say I was going to do? Am I doing it? And so if it didn't go well, can you look back and say, oh, well, you know, after lunch, I went back to the dorm and then I was talking to my buddy and then two hours went by and I didn't get the assignment done that I thought I was going to. So, you know, it's not always going to be perfect and it's a work in progress. And I try to emphasize that, you know, even if it was all a wash this week, then we're going to try again. And what will you do differently next time? Well, I won't go back to the dorm. I'll go to the library. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, really interesting. I do love Understood uh, as a resource, and we will um, link to them in our podcast description. They really try to break down executive functioning as as best they can. It is super complicated, um, but I think they do they do a nice job into the categories that you mentioned and kind of give some outline of what each of those categories mean in um, more specific terms. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear maybe a couple examples, if you can, to illuminate some of the struggles that you see students having on a regular basis with executive functioning. Like, what does that actually look like for a student um, that you've been, that you've worked with? Uh, and how does that kind of manifest itself? So I think, again, you know, time management is probably the A number one thing. And in a study that I had read um, at a college that surveyed the general population of that college, with, you know, no regard to who was or wasn't, you know, registered with the office, it, I think something like 48% of the students said they wish somebody had worked with them on time management before college. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you spoke to the contrast, right? Because you go from 40 hours a week in a building where, you know, especially I went to public schools, you know, you couldn't be in the hallway after the bell rang or you were in trouble. So, mm -hmm. you know, you had, they, 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 they function for you in the same friend who, um, you know, joked that we were way behind the neuropsychs on, on executive functioning, um, you know, has this phrase of, of parents acting as, um, I'm going to botch this, but it was like, your children's prosthetic prefrontal cortex. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, you know, in a way, all the brain nerds out there are laughing right now. By right. the way, <laughs> so that, you know, the high school schedule is a form of prosthetic executive functioning. You know, or, or prefrontal cortex. In other words, they tell you which class you need to be in. You better be in there, and you know, you got five minutes to pass between classes, and that's it. So you don't have to think about what it's going to take. Sure. So. Um, 
time management is certainly an issue because unless I have students who have to work or they are athletes, athletes, you know, really have a struggle because they, especially the ones with learning disabilities, need to be when things take them longer so often. They literally don't have time. Every weekend they're on a bus and it's hard to catch up then. But for everybody else, how do you manage time without the urgency of things that have to get done to the point? We are all motivated. You know, I think I shouldn't say all, but many of us are motivated by, oh, I don't want to disappoint somebody by not turning that in that thing they expect, you know. And so we do it. But if it's just like in my case, read the book, if you can fudge well enough, you don't have to. And so creating that sense of urgency, um, you know, organization, I think is huge. And I just, um, goodness, I see it's only Tuesday. I've already forgotten whether I put this up or I just got it done, but I put up a new page on my site about organizing electronic files. So again, when you talk about planning, um, you know, boy, I hate to quote Dr. Phil, but he does say, or at least when I watched him in the, in the early OOs, you got to set yourself up for success. <laughs> yeah, <And> that's right. <laughs> I think that that is absolutely true. So I have um, a bag. I like a bag with pockets and I want every, you know, everything to have the pocket it goes in. And I'm pretty strict with myself about putting the pens back where the pens go and the ID where that goes. Because again, that's that predictability we were talking about. Sure. And then, and so if something's missing, I know immediately. And um, when it comes to your materials, you know, back when I was, I was just thinking about this today, um, at some point, I think in ninth grade, I had a teacher who did binder inspections. And you had to have your binder for his class arranged the way he wanted it to. And perhaps that wasn't the best way to do it. But what I realized he was trying to do was help us utilize a system to keep things organized. So on my website, I do have a post for high school, uh, for parents about what to do with the papers that come home during the week, because it is overwhelming. You know, every, they go to seven classes or whatever, six classes a day and they're getting papers and then they come home. And I mean, certainly even with college students who don't get as much paper handed to them as much as they have to download things from, from you know, course management software. It's a lot, what do you do with it? So you shove it in the binder and the binder goes in the backpack and I've seen backpacks that make me, you know, really, oh, really gosh. uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a, a messy backpack and a messy binder to me are signals of a student under stress hmm. because then they can't find, I mean, it's this is back to executive functioning and all the symptoms we look at when we're looking at a student we think has ADHD. I did the work, I never turned it in because I lost it. Right. And so I think teaching students how, when you no longer have physical materials, how do you organize it? Well, you create a desktop folder with subfolders that mimic what a binder looks like. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say that I'm imagining this in the all digital world right. and how challenging that can be, and especially for parents too, mm -hmm. because as a parent, you really want to, I'm not a parent, but I know this from talking with many parents, you can kind of build some of those skill sets at home with your kid. You can sit down and say, okay, you know, Mike, take your binder out of the backpack, put mm -hmm. it on the kitchen table. Let's spread out all the papers that you've dumped into your backpack throughout the week. And we can go through this one is math. This one is science. This one is English, whatever. Right. But in the digital world, 
sometimes those things just don't exist anywhere that the kid was maybe emailed and then the email got deleted or was posted mm -hmm. here. And maybe it's only for this one class that it gets posted in this location. And so thinking about that to me gives me, <laughs> as you were talking about earlier, it gives me a lot of agita because <laughs> it's, it's how are you providing, um, opportunities for kids to make sure they're maintaining those executive functioning skills and practicing them on a regular basis when the parent also can't support you in that process by saying, here's a physical math paper, right? right? Somehow that paper now exists on Google Classroom and a parent can't always see that. I think there's right. a huge, huge like struggle and learning curve that we're going to experience fairly quickly. And this kind of gets to the next question I'd, I'd love to hear about. And you, you touched on this, which was providing um, some guidance around organizing digital file, uh, files. But what are some other tools that you like to use to help students kind of build executive functioning skills or tools that you present to them that they can rely on to kind of work through their EF issues on a regular basis. And this, this could be for students that you work with on a regular basis or other tools you just like. Well, you know, I am, I am a nerd for a schedule. So I think, you know, again, back to Dr. Phil and setting yourself up for success. Again, it's a plan. It's a strategy. So if you're not strategic about your time, it's easy to lose a lot of it. And it's the same with your papers. If you're not strategic about where they're going, it's easy to lose them. And so if you, if you set yourself up at the beginning and you say, okay, so again, on my, on my website, there's a free, um, there's a page there of all my tips about time management and what to think about setting up your schedule. And so especially with college students, you know, I start with, and this goes back to some of the other stuff that we talk about at the, you know, high school transition to college, self-determination. All right, classes until 10, right? So how long does it truly take you to get out of bed? How many, how many snooze alarms are you going to hit? How many minutes in between each of those? And then out of your bed, eat something if you're going to eat something you know, and be, if it's COVID and you're at home at your desk in time for class to start, if you're on campus to get there, because it doesn't matter what, how much time you think it takes. It matters how much time it actually takes. Right, right. And then, you know, if you don't have class until one, if you're going to sleep until noon, that leaves a certain number of hours and you go to bed at two, you know, again, what I like about this grid that I use on paper we always start on paper so you can see the entire week because when students start to fill it in with first their classes and their obligations and their meals and their workouts, if they do that in club meetings, et cetera, they see visibly how many hours of the week they are not occupied. And they, mm -hmm. you know, the first time they do it, it blows their mind and they say, holy crow, you know, I can't believe I had this much time. Back to, of course, it's hard to manage that much time. And then we start to fill in. So here are your preferences. Do you want to get up gently if you have a couple of hours before class? Do you want that to be your chill out time? And then after class, you're in gear and then you do all your work. Do you want to do a little work before one class? Go to class, have a break for lunch, then go do some more work. And, you know, the end of your evening is where you have your chill out time. So these are things that you can start working with them on in high school. You know, parents can be looking at the weekend and say, here are the things you need to have done Sunday night at five o'clock so you plotted out what are, what are your plans where does the where do these chores fit in 
if it's an outdoor chore, will it be dark at the time you decide yeah, yeah. you're going to go do that? Um, you know, how are you going to make sure this gets done? If you don't get it done till Sunday afternoon, then, you know, there goes your Sunday afternoon plan. So engaging them in thinking about what their preferences are, how they really get things done. Um, again, it gives them options. It gives them that self-determination opportunity. And it also, though, hopefully gets, fires up that metacognition of, it really has to get done this way. It really has to get done at this time. It really takes that long because you need that information to plan. Sure, sure. I love what you're suggesting, which is placing some onus on the young person to make some choices about little things. And what I love about that is that it doesn't take a whole lot of like, what I would say, like earth shattering decision making to kind of build those skill sets. You know, you can ask your young person, so what time did you get in the shower this morning? And, you know, did you did that leave you enough time before you got to the bus? And the person can say, not quite. I felt like I was running out the door. And it, that's an easy inroad for a parent or even a teacher um, to say, well, maybe get up like 10 or 15 minutes earlier. If you set your alarm for 6.30, maybe it should be set for 6.15 and to give you that little bit of extra time. And then leaving it up to the student to then go and make that choice and kind of take those steps independently. I think is really, is really great. Um, well, and to know too, realistically, when do you function? So if you're somebody mm -hmm. who's up, you know, if you are a morning person, then I wouldn't be planning to do work at 10 o'clock at night as a lot of, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night as some college students do. Night people, the same thing, you know, over many years, I've had students with aspirations and they'll say to me, well, I think I should get up at six and do this. And I keep saying, well, you can work your way backward in small increments to that. But don't say, you know, as much as we say, don't set yourself up for, do set yourself up, I'm sorry, for success. Sure. Don't set yourself up for failure either. You yeah, know, if yeah. you, you know, goals should be as the smart, you know, uh, rubric says, uh, whatever the, the mnemonic, not the rubric, um, you know, realistic. Mm, and so mm -hmm. to, to imagine that you're going to go from getting up at 10 to getting up at six in a week seems unrealistic to me. And so, you know, and it doesn't matter. I think one of the things I've, I've tried to do with my students over many years is remove that feeling of, and I'm not assuming they all have it, but you know, there's some feeling of shame about the way they get things done. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, look, everybody listening to this knows somebody who gets the work done at the last minute at their job, wherever they are, and it still works for them. So I think we have to be realistic as I am for students and with students and say, you know, look, it is entirely possible you can run the rest of your life like this. And that's neither good nor bad. That, that just is, it's just a fact. But what I care about and whether or not you're gonna change the way you're doing things comes down to how do you feel about it? Sure, so sure. if you're telling me, I think I could have written a better paper how much do you care about getting the better grade and writing the better paper? Because if it's not that motivating, then you, A, you probably don't have to change. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't get a cookie for, for getting your paper in on time. I mean, you get, you get the grade, but, you know, when you die, they aren't going to say, and she got all her papers done on time. You uh -huh. know, so, or, you know, three weeks ahead of schedule, whatever, or two days to go before it was due. So, 
what's happening to you? How do you feel every time you're up at three in the morning trying to write your paper? And is that enough? Can you use that feeling to drive the changes? Because change is hard um, yeah. for all of us and, and in every part of life. Sometimes, you know, it's too scary. Well, how am I going to feel? Am I willing to sacrifice this to do that? You know, am I willing to sacrifice how much I enjoy going back to the dorm after lunch and chilling with my roommates um, over going to the library, which I know I need to do? to get the work done and then enjoy myself later. So, you know, many of us operate on a suboptimal level. <laughs> we, I mean, that's, that's Sure, that's sure. True. It's you so know? true, yeah. And so we need to be, I think you have to treat them like the young adults that they, that they, that they are. And, you know, it, but the truth is too, if it's not getting done because you fell asleep at your desk and then, you know, <laughs> And then you, as so many students, you just don't show up to class, but it's an electronic submission. So it's not like the professor doesn't know you didn't get the paper done. Right, so, right, right. You know, I think it's, it's trying to just say to them, this, this could be better for you. And is it worth it to you to make those changes? Yeah. Because it is hard and it takes self-discipline and, and that to me has a moralistic tone I don't particularly like. So I try to avoid, I'm trying to think of what I usually say to them. I mean, it's, it's self-regulation. I want to go do this, but I know I will be mad at myself later and therefore I will stay at yeah. this desk. Or I'll experience a great deal of anxiety later if I don't do this or if I go hang out with my friends. I know for the next three hours, all the thing that I'm going to be thinking about is this paper mm -hmm. that, I, that I wanted to write mm -hmm. and decided to make this other decision. I, I do think you're, you're spot on that it's not a, shame is not a useful tool in this situation. Not a useful tool, I think, like really much of the time, but um, not a useful tool particularly for executive functioning struggles because that doesn't necessarily breed positive shifts in behavior. Mm -hmm. It might breed negative shifts in behavior, which is further avoidance, further hiding, further whatever, what we were really trying to get young people to do is like make a, make a decision and feel good about that decision. Feel mm -hmm. like if I decide to stay in for an extra hour and finish this paper, I'm going to have less anxiety for the next 12 hours and that's worth it. So therefore I'm going to sacrifice that extra hour here for the long-term benefit. And I think it's Russell Barkley, and again, I'll probably botch this too, but he said something like ADHD is not a, a weakness or a dysfunction of um, intention, it's attention, and I'm probably botching that. But in other words, <laughs> I think what he's saying is like people with ADHD know what they have to do. Uh -huh. It's not that they need all those reminders. They know what they have to do. It is the initiation, well, back to an executive function, it's the initiation, it's the prioritizing, it's all of those bits that are, are a challenge for them. And so, um, I, I, you know, part of what I hope the, the, the goal setting with my students achieves, again, this, and this is something parents can do too, and teachers where they have the opportunities and say like, okay, assess how the week went. So here were the goals you set. Here's what happened, what got in the way, and not everybody's going to be able to reflect, you know, and, and articulate what they didn't do, but or the, what they did or didn't do that they should have or shouldn't have done. But, you know, what would change it? What would be different? So 
the kinds of accountability measures, a pop-up reminder with a sound on your phone that goes off as you're leaving class that says, hey, go to the library, don't go back to the dorm. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. um, whatever it is. And I am a human being. I have turned those things off. So again, it's nothing is perfect. Nothing is magical. These are just things to try to see if they work for you. Mm -hmm. Meeting your friend at the library for what they call, uh, well, I call it like from my, when my kids were little parallel play, right? <laughs> so <laughs> <Sure>. parallel studying. <laughs> so you're not, you're sitting two carols away from each other, but you both go in, you make one of them the study monitor and that person sets the timer and says, we're gonna do this for two hours. And, you know, make sure the other one doesn't get up from the carol or sit at, you know, opposite ends of a table, things like that. In COVID times, um, uh, Attitude, I think, had a great thing on body doubling um, where you, uh, you just open up Zoom or FaceTime. And so mom or dad like does the bills while you work on your paper. I mean, you could say misery loves company, right? Sure. Yeah. That's and, a great idea. Um, so at least there's somebody else doing something, keeping you in that zone so that you feel like, you know, that's why some students like the library because they go and they mm -hmm. think, oh, people are studying here. They're being serious. I should I study to too. That. I should go yeah. do that. Yeah, some yeah. people hate the library because it's too intense. So yeah. I just like to throw stuff out. And part of this whole process too is figuring out what actually does work for you. Yeah. It's different. So, you know, um, <laughs> I was just having this uh, conversation with somebody about the Cornell note-taking system. For those of us old enough to know, when you talk about setting them up for success, that is that is a system that requires so much executive functioning in the moment. I don't know. It how sure to does. It. Yeah, yeah. Right at, at the moment, I'm learning stuff. I'm supposed to figure out whether which column it goes in. Right. <laughs> I mean, and then if you have to flip the page, it's forget it because you're left with two right. brand new columns. Yeah, right. no, 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 no. So, <laughs> you know, I think a part of, um, you know, what we can teach students too is um, the fact that things are part of a process. So to me, note taking yeah. is what you, you know, and I'm somebody who could just only listen and take notes as fast as I could, but not learn anything while I was in class mm. for very lecture-based classes. Discussion was different, but if it was a topic I didn't have any knowledge of, because we all know, right, background knowledge is so uh, important in your ability to take in new information. I had to just get that information down as quickly as I could. Well, now, later, I realized what I should have been doing is going back to my notes and creating a study guide out of those notes. But to ask students in the moment to decide that's important, I'm gonna, I have students, oh my gosh, and they're, they're switching pen colors while they're taking notes. Hey, yeah. And I'm saying to them, work. stop. Well, it's also a lot of working memory. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's that what was I mean. a new term. I write new vocabulary in pink and then I pick up my blue pen. Same with highlighting. So, you know, working memory is one of those things that you you're trying to reduce the need to constantly hold stuff in your head, which mm -hmm. is why back to the schedule, right? You know what day you decided you were going to go study chemistry for two hours and then you don't have to think about it. You don't you don't have to remember it. It's right on the schedule and back to the organization of the materials. If you can download everything you possibly can at the start of the semester 
load them into your folder. So I suggest renaming, you know, every week's reading assignment saying read by class September 8th, read by class September 17th, read by class September 23rd. And that way you're not poking around, you go right to it. And as soon as you're done reading it, you move it into the done folder or you rename it done. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Elizabeth, let's do a little bit of a thought experiment. Oh, okay. And I want you to kind of humor me here. Sure. Um, I know this is not your forte, but I, I like how you think about the world and I like the perspective you bring. Obviously, this podcast does not focus on higher ed issues for the most part. We've dabbled there a little bit. Um, we were mostly focusing on K-12, right? Mm -hmm. And it, let's say I'm starting a new school and I'm going to hire you as my consultant to come in and, and give me some guidance around executive functions in school and how we might design this new school with executive functioning in mind. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea with this thought experiment is to say like from the ground up, what are some of the things that we can kind of build norms around in the school or, um, curricular decisions or time or what have you. I, I was just thinking earlier as you were mentioning this, that the kind of like dronish bell sounds that exist um, when, with typical schools, which is like, you know, 57.35 sec uh, minutes later, another drone bell sound happens and then you like move around to your class, really I think does the opposite of promoting executive functioning. Mm. Kids are just sort of feeling like they're being told where to go all the time and not left many choice. What are some other things that you might build into a school that from your point of view would promote executive functioning? I, I think part of the reason a lot of students struggle with executive functioning is we don't teach them any kind of system. And mm. so those who are just lucky enough to figure it out on their own do. And the rest of them flounder as did I, you know, starting starting college all those years ago. So I think I'm a big fan of, you know, really deliberate instructive uh, instruction techniques of, you know, starting by introducing, you know, what this what is this unit about? I mean, the kinds of things that really should be happening that don't always feel like be that uh, don't feel like they're always happening. Like being explicit of like, here's what we're studying next. Here's why we're studying it. This is what we expect you to get out of it. Here's what we're going to do to get you there. And then, you know, really, I mean, modeling through the lesson plans organization. Here's today's goal. And when I was in graduate school, that's how I had to write my, um, my plans for, for class. And I'd be lying if I said that once I became a teacher, they always looked like that. But, <laughs> you know, there, there was a method to that madness, you know, in retrospect. I think that when students understand what they're supposed to get out of it, then they know what to pay attention to. And so I think you model it for them and then, you know, really explicit instruction and then, you know, letting them practice things and then, you know, uh, getting them to mastery levels. So there's all sorts of things. I think, you know, students having to do an independent research um, project and being walked through the steps. I mean, there are some opportunities for choice there, but, you know, show them what it looks like. Uh, one of the tools one of my colleagues showed me, which I think is great and I recommend all the time is 
go find an online, um, it's called an assignment calculator. And lots of university libraries have these. Mm -hmm. So you plug in today's date, when the papers do, a lot of them have like, like, what kind of paper is it? And it lays out at a really micro level, you know, first day, think about your topic, second day, decide what your topic will be, you know, start taking notes, but to really, you know, ask them questions and say, how would you approach this? What is your process? There's the metacognition end of it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get some research done and I'm going to write the paper. Great. Do you need to have a first draft done? How far in advance do you need to have that done? Did you want to ask somebody to look at it? How long will they need? So, you know, I think a questioning coaching model of, you know, asking them first how they would approach it so that you have a sense of where they are and then they can see when you say, well, what about this? They can see the kinds of steps that they could take. And this is obviously extremely vague, but, you know, to have some sort of consistency across classes about the way classes start. Here's, you know, today's goal on the board. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what you're doing at the end. I have seen teachers who do that. And I think it would be better for you're you're creating a frame for them to take in information. Sure. And that's ideal. Yeah, um, yeah. And so hopefully it can also, I mean, look, <laughs> one of the things, um, I used to have uh, somewhere in my office of somebody's version online of a smart, you know, the smart goals mnemonic, and one of them was sort of like, well, you know, why are you doing this? And my answer was always, because it's a sign. You're not, you know, you're not right, going to create right. interest and motivation simply by saying, and I get to do this, you know, <laughs> assignment. Um, but trying to get them to think about like how do you do this how do you get it done and then you know choices where where they exist um yeah one th one thing i like that you're suggesting here that could be really useful too is by being more goal oriented in lesson planning and being explicit about those goals you give students the opportunity and teachers the opportunity to build in times for reflection on those goals to say, okay, you know, our enduring understanding for this unit was, um, you know, you you name it, right? Like uh, the United States was in a pretty rough shape after the Civil War for blank reasons. And then you're giving students a specific thing that if done correctly, teachers can ask them, so do you think you understand this more or less now at mm -hmm. the end of this unit? And why do you think that's the case? And then what are some steps you can take to maybe think about how you can dive deeper to gain a more robust understanding later? Similar, what you're saying is using something like an assignment calculator, a student can then kind of look back at their trajectory on completing a paper, completing a whatever, and say, huh, okay, I kind of maybe started off this paper about seven or eight days later than I really wanted to. And I turned it in and I got a B plus and it was fine. But if I started even five days before that, then this is where my rough draft would have gone. This is where my, you know, peer edit would have gone. And I think that that is all super valuable for trying to help students kind of chunk out and really think about the minutia of their own learning experience. What I, think overall you're suggesting 
um, is that schools need to just be more intentional about asking students to think about their learning and the ways that they feel like they're successful and the ways that they feel like they kind of struggle in a non-shameful way. Um, yeah, and, and I think to offer them things too. I mean, look, you know, sometimes the argument is, well, a lot of kids get it. They don't want to be, you know, told to, to, to organize their notebook this way or to do this this way. And first of all, it shouldn't just be that those who figure it out thrive and those who don't, don't. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem right. And, um, you know, I don't think that students who are very academically and cognitively capable suffer from learning a strategy for doing things. They can still do it the way they want to. But, you know, um, there are a lot of high functioning people who, who, who fun you know, the end result is great, but the process to get there is scary um, and <laughs> not pretty to look at. And so, again, they might benefit from it. And maybe they'll, you know, follow the steps and it won't mean anything to them and they'll just do it and it's fine. But um, yeah, the metacognitive aspects of just thinking about, well, why are you going to do this this way? And how do you think it's going to work? And what are all the steps to get there? I mean, this is all part of the college application process. Why are you applying to these places? How long will it take you to get stuff done? What mm -hmm. is your, you know, your goal in doing this? I mean, these, these kind of how far in advance you want to start. These are all like the self-questioning element and, and thinking about back to my thing of where we started about planning. What's the end goal? What are the steps to get there? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's really what life is about in so many ways. Well, we always offer a segment on this podcast, Elizabeth, for uh, the host and hosts or guests to kind of reflect and think about and share what this conversation is making them rethink about education. And I would love to hear from you. I will go first if you would like me to. Or, yeah, uh, yeah, so I, this conversation makes me realize how much schools need to be systematic about their approaches to things that maybe are a little less than obvious. So schools, I think, really do a good job about thinking that they need to teach English in a certain way. They need to teach this course on math. Maybe it's Algebra 1 in a certain way. Maybe they need to teach this class on bio in a certain way. They train teachers to be really great teachers in those content areas. But what I think schools sometimes miss is that studentship skills are just as important as content area knowledge. And being able to get through, let's say, a project proposal or work along a timeline or collaborate with other people, those kind of what, we, what we've been calling for the last 25 years now, 21st century skills, right, mm -hmm. are equally important. But we're not doing a good job of kind of capturing all those skills in our, in our uh, language right now. Executive functions fall into that because they are a critical 21st century skill. And I would argue you look at some of the top CEOs or, you know, go-getters or, you know, thought leaders in the world, and they are um, 
they are pretty organized and they're pretty, uh, you know, able to make a plan and, and, and uh, go after a goal in a meaningful way. Um, and those are just as important as an MBA or, uh, you know, a PhD in history or, or, or something like that. So that's kind of what I'm thinking from, the, from this conversation. Well, I'm thinking I had had a conversation recently about, you know, when we talk about being deliberate about the way you do things, um, I do think that elevating even everyday stuff to a metacognitive level, I mean, you take the garbage out on, uh, we take the garbage out Thursday morning because Thursday morning, they come and get it. So, you mm -hmm. know, not everything has to be overthought. But, um, you know, if you can't explain to somebody why you're teaching them, you know, they're reading such and such book, except it's in the curriculum, then maybe it's time to talk about what that curriculum is intended to do. And yeah. I, we had just been having a conversation recently about, you know, forgive me my fellow English majors, but, you know, a separate piece, which I read in 1984 or five. And, you know, sure. what, is, what is it that a high school student is supposed to get out of a separate piece? And, you know, again, Given the the narrow focus of that book and who you know who it focused uh, on, like, is there is there another thing that would do the same job but be updated and be more yeah. be more relevant and certainly add to the diversity of, of voices that you're that you're looking at? Like, what's the theme, and how can you get there? Yeah. So, I don't know it might be time to examine some of the stuff we're looking at, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think all the English majors out there who um, are trying to teach this fall are agreeing with that statement. <laughs> and um, there's lots to lots to think about, uh, you know, both in terms of what's happening in the world with um, protests and with violence, as well as with uh, COVID-19. You know, those are, those things are making us think about what are we actually teaching and why? And I think that those are questions that are long past due to be asked. Um, so we always end every episode with a section for plugs. And uh, I know that folks can buy either one of your books. Um, they can go head on over to Amazon and, and get those. And we'll drop your website into our podcast description, which is ldadvisory.com. Um, I would love to hear what else you would like to plug. So I, I want to say that at ldadvisory.com, you will find a lot of free information. So um, for those who are listening who work with students with learning disabilities and ADHD under families and students and on my articles section, you'll find a lot of stuff about this transition and what we started talking about, how the rules are different, what students can and can't expect. So that's all there. But under college students, you will find all of the tools I've created for working with my own students there for free download and, and for free viewing. So, you know, you can see hopefully my metacognitive approach, you know, providing sure. strategies um, to folks and share them because, you know, the, the, the more students have a chance to, to, you know, see a strategy and just try it out and see if that works and then perhaps if not, figure out what does work for them, the better it'll be. That sounds great. And Elizabeth, uh, I know that you want to get more copies of your book in other people's hands. <laughs> I'm wondering if you would offer a special Rethinking EDU discount to listeners. Is I, that something you would? I would love to do that. So if you Yay. use the contact link on my site or if you just find me on social media, I'm out there. Um, you can just send me the code Rethinking EDU 
and I will get you a special discount for that. So Awesome. You're a gem, Elizabeth. I appreciate that. Well, listen, everyone, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, and thank you to Elizabeth Hamlet for being our guest on this episode of Rethinking EDU. Be sure to keep tuned in. Uh, we're going to kind of shift our trajectory of podcast episodes into a new series up and coming. Stay tuned for more on that soon. And in the meantime, keep Rethinking EDU. And thanks for listening. <laughs>